Good day, everyone. If you turn back to uh, the start of Acts chapter 15, that's where we're picking up the story, but I'll pray for us as we begin. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have spoken so clearly to us in your Son, our Lord Jesus, and by your Word. And so, Father, we pray now that you will help us to listen to your Word, uh, but more than that, we pray that we will take it to heart and we will live by it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. When I first started work after uni, I, uh, I'd had a few part-time jobs when I was going through school and uni, but my first full-time job, I worked in the heady world of corporate taxation, which was as exciting as it sounds, although there are a couple of people here who think it's more exciting. But uh, uh, anyway, very early on, I was, I was asked to write my first advice for a client. Uh, and so I did, I took it very seriously, I went away, I spent hours on it, I, I researched it. Uh, and I wrote this excellent two pages for the client, answering the question. And I thought, this is really good work. They just must be so thankful that they have employed me uh, because this is so good. They won't want to do anything to it. They'll just send it straight out. So I put it in my boss's in tray outside her office and thought, well, that's a job well done. I'll move on to something else. An hour later, I was sitting at my desk. My boss walked past and just dropped something on my desk. Uh, and it was my two-page letter. And it was totally covered in red pen. And so she'd started off in the first paragraph like crossing out words and replacing them and then obviously got a bit exasperated and just put a red line straight down all two pages and rewrote the letter. I think dear so-and-so might have been the only words I wrote that that remained at at this point. Can you imagine how demoralising that is? Uh, But it's the same in any job, if you think about it. I'd I'd wasted maybe five hours Uh, on that work. If you're a carpenter, I imagine it's the same. You know, you spend hours building cupboards and then you work out they don't fit in the hole that the builders have left for the cupboards. Or the the homeowner says, ah, I don't like them. You know, it's demoralising. But imagine if it was your life's work. Uh, Imagine if it was years of your life that you had poured out and someone comes and says you've been wasting your time. How would you feel? How would you feel at that point? That is something of the scene we come to in Acts chapter 15, verse 1. See, Paul and Barnabas, I hope you remember, have been looking at over the last two weeks. They have been traveling the world of that time, preaching the gospel, and in particular, preaching the message of justification by faith. They have been saying anyone can come and become one of God's children. Anyone can be forgiven. Anyone's sins can be washed away. Any person can become a part of God's family because Jesus has died for you. And all you have to do is repent, turn away from your old way of life and trust in Jesus. You are saved by faith in Jesus. And if you remember from the last couple of weeks, their work had not been easy. It's not like they'd been on a holiday around the Greek islands. Wherever they went, they basically got turfed out of every town after they preached for a few weeks. In one of the towns, they had been stoned and left to die. In fact, the only reason they survived is because they thought they'd killed them. And so they left them there. And then they revived after the people went away. It it was not like theirs was an easy job, but they rejoiced in it because they were preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. And more than that, people had been saved. So remember looking back over chapter 13 and 14, the last couple of weeks, Gentiles, those people from all the other nations, non-Jews, had been putting their faith in Jesus in some of the towns en masse 
Overnight, after preaching one sermon, churches had, had sprung up. It was exciting. It was wonderful. And so here they are. They've gone back home to Antioch and they're praising God and sharing everything that God had been doing through them. But then some people turn up. And these people claim to be from head office, if you like. They claim that they've come from James back in Jerusalem and maybe even Peter back in Jerusalem. And they say, actually, these guys have been getting it all wrong. They say, these people you're rejoicing about, they're not even Christians. They're not even saved because you've been telling them the wrong information. These Gentiles aren't even members of the church because you are not saved by faith alone in Christ alone. That's not the truth. Now, you need to do other things if you want to be a part of God's people. So look with me at what these guys said. Come to verse 1. It says, Some men came down from Judea and began to teach the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom prescribed by Moses, you cannot be saved. You see what they're saying? They're saying, Paul's been getting it all wrong. It's great that these Gentiles want to come and follow Jesus. Jesus is our Messiah. We agree with Paul on that. But if they want to be saved... They need to get circumcised, which is shorthand for they need to become a Jew and they need to follow the whole Old Testament law, what we call the law of Moses. So they're saying it's not faith alone in Christ alone that saves you. You need to do more than that if you want to be accepted by God. So there's the scene. So here's these men seemingly with the authority of the apostles from down in Jerusalem. They're on one side. Here's Paul and Barnabas on the other side. What's going to happen? Well, Paul and Barnabas don't just sit meekly by. They don't just do what I did and say, all right, I'll rewrite the letter and do what what you say. They say, and this is my modern translation, they say, get lost. That's actually what they say. They say, get lost. It says there in verse 2, they have a serious argument and debate. One of my favourite movies is Last of the Mohicans. And there's this point where Daniel Day-Lewis's character just quietly says, One day, we're going to have a serious disagreement to one of the other characters. That's Paul here. He's saying, we're having a serious disagreement. Now, you need to understand, Paul and Mars are not upset because they think these guys have ruined their reputation. They're not upset because they think, oh, we've wasted years and maybe we've got it wrong. They know they've got it right. They are upset because they know that what these people is saying is just wrong. And worse than that, it will lead people to hell. They are upset because this is a matter of absolute life and death. If people start believing what these guys are saying, people will not be saved. See, we saw back in Acts chapter 13 and 14, when Paul preached in the Jewish synagogues, he said to the Jews, the law of Moses cannot save you. He said, because we can't keep God's law. We just can't do it. It's just not possible. And a few years after this, he would write the letter to the Romans. Remember last year when we looked at Romans where he said, there is no one righteous, not even one. He's saying, you can't save yourself. You can't do enough good works to deal with your sin. So now if we are saved by works, even in part, heaven will be empty and hell will be full. And if people start to believe this, it will mean they stop trusting in Jesus alone, which is what they need to do if they are going to be saved. This was actually the biggest crisis that the church had faced up to at this point. This was more of a crisis than when they started killing them in Jerusalem. This was a crisis because salvation of the world rose or fell on this moment. And so it was such so big, the church there in Antioch, you see there, decides to send Paul and Barnabas and the whole team down to Jerusalem to sort it out. 
And as they go, they must have been thinking, surely, surely James and the Apostle Peter, surely they can't have the gospel wrong. But before we get to that meeting in Jerusalem, I just want to stress the most important point we need to take away from this passage. It's my first heading. Uh, Next one, if we go on. And that is, for salvation, truth matters. What you believe matters because your salvation depends on it. You need to know the gospel. You need to know what you believe and then you need to stand up for it. Paul wrote another letter in the New Testament to the Galatians about this same issue. Now, I actually think he wrote the letter to the Galatians on his way down to this meeting in Jerusalem. So I think on the way there, because Galatians is one of the earliest things written in the New Testament, I think on his way to Jerusalem, he wrote the letter to the Galatians. And in it, this is what he says, Galatians chapter 1, verse 8, he says, but even if we, Paul, Peter, any of the apostles, even if we, or even an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel other than what we have preached to you, a curse be on him. That is as strong a language as as you get. He's saying that is how serious this is. Even if I preach a different gospel to you, may I go to hell. That's what he's saying when he says a curse be upon him. And if you think, gee, that's strong, it's like his anger builds in the letter to the Galatians because by Galatians chapter 5 he says, I wish those men who are telling you you need to get circumcised, I wish they would go the whole way, he says, and castrate themselves. That's how angry he was. He says, I wish wish they would do physical damage to themselves because the truth of the gospel matters so much. Our eternal destiny depends on it. Heaven and hell depends on it. We believe. There's a reason we say creeds. You know how we say creeds sometimes at church? And they start, we believe. It's because we are saying what we believe matters. And we believe that Jesus is the Lord, the Son of God. And you must believe that to be saved. We believe that he died for our sins. And you must believe that to be saved. We believe that he rose from the grave and defeated death. And we believe that our salvation is a free gift from God received by faith alone. Knowing and holding to those truths matters more than anything. So I want to say to you tonight, even if I, even if I got up here and tried to tell you a different gospel or tried to add to that gospel until you needed something else, tell me to get lost. That is the time to walk out and find a new church because what you believe matters more than anything. The truth of the gospel matters more than anything. Come back to the story. I've called the next part vindication in Jerusalem and it starts at verse 3. They set off for this big church summit to argue the case. On the way, there's actually a lovely little moment. I love this in Acts, so they just give you these lovely little moments. It's in verse 3. They're going through Phoenicia and Samaria and the Christians there who would not have been Gentiles, so Jews and Samaritans, but they're just overjoyed when they hear the news that Gentiles are becoming Christians. And I actually think that is a wonderful moment because that is one of the signs that people truly are Christian. A sign that someone is truly a Christian is they love to hear about other people coming to faith because nothing is more joyful for someone who truly knows Jesus than hearing that other people have found the Lord and Saviour that we have come to know. Isn't that right? But on the other hand, a lack of joy in gospel growth is a really worrying sign. If, if someone doesn't rejoice at the news that people are being saved, I wonder, do they truly know Jesus? When I first became a Christian, I, I got put on the parish council 
of the church. I was like the equivalent of Braden Pilot for your congregation here at 6.30. I was the young guy, I was studying law. That doesn't make us an equivalent with Braden. But anyway, I, I, I was studying law and they said, well, you can go on the parish council and represent those young people sort of thing. And I remember being at a meeting of the parish council and I shared how wonderful it was that the youth group was growing and young people were becoming Christians. And this old man there said, well, as long as they don't want to change anything, it was one of the saddest, most deflating moments of my young Christian life at that point. And I feared for that man's salvation. I still do, I don't know. He's long gone now, but I don't know his future because to have no joy in seeing and hearing about people being saved is a really worrying sign. And sadly, Paul and Barnabas found that as well. As they went telling people, some of the Jews were still saying, well, they better get circumcised. So they get to Jerusalem. You can imagine what the tension would have been like for Paul if you've ever had to go to a meeting like that where you're sort of thinking... I've got to argue and, and they're going to argue with me. And he's thinking, have, have the great ones, has the Apostle Peter given up on Jesus? Am I alone? And so what happens? They, they assemble all the apostles, all the elders. This is one of the incredible moments in the life of the church. People make their arguments. Paul and Barnabas would have debated. Uh, their opponents would have debated things. But then Peter stands up. And my, I imagine at that point the room went silent. Because this is the guy who Jesus said, on this rock I will build my church. Peter stands up and everyone thinks, what's going to happen? But from the moment he starts, Peter vindicates Paul and Barnabas. More importantly, from the moment he starts, he confirms that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Peter's speech is just gold. Let's look at Luke verse 7. It says, after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you're aware that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles would hear the gospel message and believe. And God, who knows the heart, testified to them by giving the Holy Spirit just as he also did to us. He made no distinction between us and them, cleansing their hearts by faith. It's a wonderful thing he's saying because he's basically saying, why are we even arguing about this? He's saying, don't you remember, for us just a few chapters back in Acts, but unfortunately it was six months ago for us when we did it at church last year, don't you remember when I got to share the gospel with that guy Cornelius, that Gentile, and he became a Christian? And don't you remember how God revealed to me that, that actually all foods are clean and we don't have to worry uh, about those Old Testament laws anymore? And, and don't you remember how we've already seen that Gentile people can receive the Holy Spirit? And don't you remember that God has been at work in them and we've already heard this news, just like he has been in us, forgiving us and washing us clean? But then he brings it together at verse 10, and I think this is actually Peter's greatest moment in the Bible. There's a massive call, given he's the guy who first said to Jesus, you are the Messiah, but I think this is his magic moment. Look at verse 10. He says, Now then, why are you testing God by putting a yoke on the disciples' necks that neither our ancestors nor we have been able to bear? I think it's such a powerful line. I hope you can see what he's saying. Uh, he's saying, we Jews haven't been able to keep the law of Moses. We haven't been able to do it. Our history is of 2,000 years of failure of keeping this law. We Jews know you, you can't be made right by keeping the law. We know that what the law does is actually expose our need for forgiveness by exposing how far short we fall of God's standards. So how dare you, how dare you ask them to take on a burden that you couldn't carry? How do you, you see, he's, he's horrified. How dare you ask them 
to take on a burden you couldn't carry and that God doesn't want them to carry anyway. And then he says, this is his great moment, one of the clearest statements about salvation in the whole Bible. Look at verse 11. He says, on the contrary, we believe we are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus in the same way they are. You can imagine the troublemakers at that point are just sort of choking on their words. Because he actually, look closely at that verse, look at verse 11. He says something quite profound. He's making the point, it's not just the Gentiles who are saved by faith alone. We Jews are saved by faith alone. For those of these to hear, he's saying it's not just the Gentiles who don't need to keep God's law to be saved. We Jews don't need to keep God's law to be saved. Because what is the only way for anyone to be saved, Jew or Gentile? Grace, the free gift of God, received through faith in Jesus. So everyone falls silent. Now they listen with their ears open to what Paul and Barnabas share about what God has been doing. But there's still a problem. There's still one person whose opinion mattered a lot and he hasn't spoken. And that person was James. Now James was Jesus' brother, as in another son of Mary and Joseph, obviously a younger brother of Jesus, uh, which, by the way, shows the silliness of the idea that, that Mary was a perpetual virgin or anything like that. Uh, she had, Jesus had brothers and sisters. That, that's what he had after he was born. Uh, Joseph and Mary had a normal marriage. But James had not been one of the 12 disciples. In fact, he was probably one of the brothers that tells about in Mark's gospel who went with Mary to try to talk Jesus into being quiet and coming home. Do you remember where they said, Jesus, you're acting crazy-like. We, we can't come home so we can keep an eye on you and, and make sure you don't hurt yourself. But very quickly after Jesus' death and resurrection, James became a Christian and became accepted as one of the leaders in the church in Jerusalem. Alongside Peter and John, he was probably the most important leader in the church. So the fight wasn't over yet, because what if James disagrees? And so James speaks up. And again, you can imagine the pause, but straight away, James agrees with Peter. Now you can read his speech from verse 13, you can read it again later on. He really adds one key point, and that is... The Old Testament prophets already told us God wanted the Gentiles as part of his people. He quotes Amos and he quotes Isaiah and he makes the point, God has always said this was part of his plan. Why are you surprised about this? It's sort of James's point. So James is saying this isn't some newfangled idea. This has been the plan from the beginning. And that was the end of the argument. And I want to tell you, you should be incredibly thankful for those three men and what they said that day because this is the greatest truth. Whether you are a Jew or a Gentile, whether you are African or Asian or European or Pacific Islander or Indigenous Australian or South American, I don't know, I've probably left some people here in church out, but I mean to include you because the point is, whoever you are, wherever you are from, God offers you forgiveness and a place in his family and you do not earn it, you cannot earn it because we are sinners, all of us who fall short of God's standards, but God says, accept my free gift of salvation through faith in Jesus. That is the gospel. And I want you to praise God for it, because without it, we would be facing the judgment of God. And I want you to hold on to that truth, because that truth matters more than anything, the truth of the gospel. And if I ever get up here, or anyone else ever gets up here, and preaches a different message, or adds to that message, tell me to go away, because that truth matters more than anything. But the passage doesn't end there, and James keeps talking. I sort of imagine Paul thinks, hang on, what's it, what more has he got to say? He's already answered the question, but he keeps talking. 
He says, that is all absolutely true, but I've got something else to say to Gentile Christians. So if we summarise the first point by saying, with regard to salvation, truth matters more than anything, James says, amen to that. But now he says, but with regard to how you treat one another, love matters. So come with me. I've called this last part, for fellowship, love matters. This is from verse 19. So come to verse 19. James says, therefore, in my judgment, we should not cause difficulties for those among the Gentiles who turn to God. That's, I'm with you, Paul, faith alone. But then he says, verse 20, he says, but instead, we should write to them to abstain from things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from eating anything that has been strangled, and from blood. Now, to our ears, that is a very strange list of things, isn't it? Now, we sort of think, yeah, sexual immorality, I get that. I get why he says abstain from sexual immorality. God's morality hadn't changed between the Old and the New Testaments. Sex is for one man and for one woman in the context of a marriage relationship. And so if anyone continues on, see, anyone who says, I trust in Jesus, but they just continue on and refuse to repent of sexual immorality, they are not saved. So, so of course, all Christians need to abstain from sexual immorality that's a sin. It's something Jesus died for. But the other things there, look at those other things. Eating food from an animal that was strangled or eating blood, they're all straight out of the Old Testament ceremonial law that James just agreed we're not bound by. So why still ask Gentiles to not do those things? Well, what it's about is about love for other people. He's asking them to abstain because they want other people to hear the gospel and they don't want to be a stumbling block to stop them from listening. And then when people become Christians, he wants them to feel comfortable in the church so they can grow as a disciple of Jesus. And so he doesn't want a stumbling block put in front of them. See, what James wants is he wants the Gentile Christians to see that it was actually really, really hard for Jewish people to accept that many of the laws they had followed so religiously no longer apply. For Jews who had become Christians, it was really hard when you came to church and a Gentile sat down next to you and ate blood sausage. Now, they're not Scottish, but yet, you know, I'm trying to make a point. Something made of blood. I like my steak really rare. They would have been appalled as I ate my steak next to them. And so his point is, and even more than that, for Jews who were not yet Christians, they would just thought, what is this Christianity business? You're telling us Jesus is our Messiah. Well, no Messiah would have encouraged people to be ungodly like that. So for all Jews, it was especially hard when they saw Gentile Christians doing these sort of things, especially because all those things there in verse 20, they were all tied to pagan religions. They were all the things you did as part of worshipping the pagan gods. I think that's why sexual immorality is included, even though it's actually a sin unlike the other things, because that was such a part of pagan religion. See, we, so many modern people think the pagan religions are just like us going to church. The pagan religions were awful. It was debauchery, what they did there. They, they went there and, and it was just chaos, what they did. And so sexual immorality was actually at the heart of their worship. And so I think that's why he includes it here. He's saying, you need to understand, if you persist in that, besides your own salvation... You're actually stopping Jewish people hearing about Jesus. So the big point James is saying is, he's saying, look, there are enormous freedoms for us as Christians. 
But at this point, it'd just be really loving if you Gentile Christians were willing to limit your freedoms to help Jewish people hear the gospel and to help Jewish Christians keep growing. So yes, you're free to do some of those things. You're free to eat uh, uh, the food of a strangled animal. You're, You're free to eat blood. You're free to do those things. But at the moment, if you do them, understand it will be a stumbling block for other people. This is such an important principle and Paul actually expands it out later on in 1 Corinthians 8 if you want to go read it later on in Romans 14 but the principle is for the Christian just because you are free to do something doesn't mean you should do it. Just because you're free to do something doesn't mean you should do it. As Christians we need to love the people around us and we need to love the people around us enough so that we're willing to limit our freedoms So there are no stumbling blocks to them hearing the gospel and them growing as a disciple of Jesus. Now, this can be a really tricky thing to work out. Very, very quickly, after a few years, the Apostle Paul stopped obeying these restrictions because they were just for a moment, they were just for this situation. At this time, once the church became more Gentile and and all the Jews in the area had heard the gospel, the Apostle Paul moved on from this. In some places, he didn't follow this request. In other places, he did follow this request because it depends on the situation. And we don't like that. We'd much rather just give me rules to follow and I know what to do, but that's not how it works. You need to show wisdom and love. There's a great example in the last part of our passage Uh, Look at uh, chapter 16, verses 1 to 5, the last part that was read. Paul meets this young guy called Timothy. He's a Jewish man with a Jewish mother, but his father was a Gentile, and so he never got circumcised. And Paul wants Timothy to come on a mission with him, where they are going to be sharing the gospel with Jewish people. But these Jewish people know Timothy's got a Greek dad. And and so he thinks, they're they're going to not listen to you because they don't think you're really a Jew. So what does he do? He circumcises Timothy. Now, in other places, Paul says, I will not circumcise anyone because they're saying you've got to be circumcised to be saved, so I'm not going to do it. But here he does it. So is Paul a hypocrite? Is he someone who just flips and flops because he doesn't know what he thinks? No, he does whatever is best in that situation for people to hear the gospel. He does whatever is best in that situation for people to grow as disciples of Jesus. And so because Timothy is a Jew and it'd be a stumbling block, he circumcises him. It takes wisdom. It depends on the situation. But the principle, and this is what I want you to take away from the second part of the passage, the principle is that the Christian will give up their freedoms and their preferences for the good of others. Not godliness. This is not talking about godliness and sin. This is not talking about things where the Bible is absolutely clear and the answer is obvious. I've seen some Christians actually use passages like this to justify the fact that they go out drinking and and they they get drunk or they they carry on in different ways. They say, oh no, well I need to fit in with my workmates to be a witness and everyone drinks so I need to... That's rubbish. Jesus ate with the tax collectors and the sinners. He didn't get drunk with the tax collectors and the sinners. Now, this is about being more conservative. Don't misapply what he's saying. This is about being more conservative for the sake of others, giving up your freedoms for the sake of others. So I'll give you some examples. If, if you're inviting a Jewish person to church, 
You're inviting a Jewish person along to church, or perhaps to the life course on Tuesday night. You had a, a conservative Jewish person coming along to the life course. A wise, loving Christian would contact the organiser of the life course and say, can we make sure there's food that, that they can eat? Can we make sure it's not, you know, pork chops for, for supper at the life course? Can we, can we make sure it's something they can have here? You see, we're free to eat pork, but why cause an issue if you love this person and want them to hear about Jesus? Why put a stumbling block in their way? If you are seeking to witness in a Muslim community, some people go and are a part of the peace tent at Lakemba during Ramadan and go and try and share the gospel with Muslim people. Great thing to do. Many of CMS missionaries go to the Middle East uh, and try and share Jesus with Muslim people. If you're doing that, you, you, if you love them and you want them to listen to you, you would wear extra modest clothes. If you're a woman, you would put a headscarf on. Now, you might say to me, don't you understand feminism, Phil? I don't have to wear a headscarf. Don't tell me what I can wear. And I say, well, why? What, what does it worry you? Give up your freedoms because what matters is that they get to hear about Jesus and they won't listen to you if you aren't dressed in a way they consider to be appropriate. In the church, a really common example is alcohol. I think Christians are free to drink alcohol in moderation. Not get drunk, but I think Christians are free to drink alcohol in moderation. Some Christians disagree with me. Some Christians read the Scriptures and say, no, I think because of the consequences of alcohol, no Christians should drink alcohol. So I have a general rule at church events, we do not have alcohol. And when I invite people to my home, we don't have alcohol at a, at a church event. Because what does it matter if you don't get a glass of wine? Give up your freedom for the good of other people. But pharma, I could go on with example after example, but actually it's unhelpful. Because then we start creating laws where, ah, oh, well, so we should wear headscarves or we should... That's not the point. Far more important is the principle. The principle is that it is so much more important than people hear the gospel than you get what you want. Whatever your preferences, whatever your, what you think is good, it's more important, give it up, so that other people hear the gospel. But far more important than what you like is that other people can be included in God's people. This is why a Christian doesn't just ask, is this a sin? And then, if it is, I can't do it. If it isn't, I can that's a good first question. But a Christian then says, is it helpful? They don't just say, is it a sin? And then, okay, I can do it. They then say, is it helpful for these other people around me if I act like this? Is it helpful for other people, for their growth? So we need to be what Martin Luther said about the Apostle Paul. He said, he was strong in faith. He was unbendable on the word of God, but he was soft in love. That's all we need to be, unbendable. Truth matters. Where the Bible has spoken clearly, it, it, there is no argument, and certainly in matters of salvation. But we need to be soft in love where people can disagree. For salvation, truth matters more than anything. But for fellowship, love matters too. Let's pray. Now, Heavenly Father, we thank you for the wonderful news of your gospel that we are saved by grace through faith. We thank you for that because we know that if it was up to our works, no one would be saved. Father, we pray that we would hold to that truth in an unbending way. We pray that we would stand up for that truth and fight for it no matter what. But Father, in matters of indifference, in matters of preference, in matters that are not about salvation and the truth of your word,
Help us to be willing to give up our preferences. Help us to be willing to bend what we do for the sake of other people being able to hear the gospel and come and be a part of your people. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.